1: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Guy Marzarati in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Dominion Voting Systems versus Fox News Network. Jury selection starts today in the landmark trial where the right-wing media giant faces a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit. Dominion argues Fox News knowingly aired false information about its voting machines in the aftermath of the 2020 election. And those same conspiracy theories are taking hold in California. In Shasta County, supervisors canceled a contract with Dominion and plan to hand-count votes in future elections. We look at the law and politics of the Dominion case and its impact in the state. That's next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Guy Marzorati. in for Mina Kim. Jury selection begins today in a Delaware courtroom where Fox News is facing a $1.6 billion defamation suit. The plaintiff is Dominion Voting Systems, which is accusing Fox News of broadcasting conspiracies that the voting machines were part of a plot to steal the 2020 presidential election from Donald Trump. This hour, we'll unpack the landmark case and hear how falsehoods about Dominion could dramatically reshape how elections are run in one California county. And we want to hear from you. What questions do you have about the lawsuit against Fox News? Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. And to start us off this hour, we're joined by Jeremy Peters, New York Times correspondent who's been following the lawsuit. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning. So to set us off here, uh, maybe give us a sense of just what's happening in Delaware Superior Court today, where this trial is set to take place.
2: So the trial set to take place in Wilmington, Delaware, which um, many large American corporations are incorporated, Fox News being one of them, because they have very uh, favorable um, incorporation laws there. So the court today, after two days of pretrial hearings in which the judge set the parameters for how each side can or can and can't argue its case before the jury, Today they select that jury. It's going to be made up of twelve people and six alternates. Um, they will be in the courtroom every day for what we expect to be the next six weeks. Uh, if this could stretch on into the end of May. Uh, it will be. Uh, it's expected to be, you know, an incredibly a high-profile parade of witnesses coming from the Fox News side, everybody from well-known hosts like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity to the the chairman of the Fox Corporation, Rupert Murdoch.
1: And this jury is going to hear a case being brought by Dominion Voting Systems. Let's kind of get to know this company a little bit. It sounds like their story actually goes back to a previous voting crisis in this country, the Hanging Chad. So Dominion
2: is a, a company that has operations in many states and many battleground states, and that is part of the reason why it became a target by pro-Trump conspiracy theorists. It's, it designs voting machines and software uh, that's that's pretty standard, from what I, uh, my limited knowledge of the voting technology industry. Uh, there were uh, no issues with. It's software that were um, exploited or that came up in any way in the 2020 election, despite what some pro-Trump lawyers like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani were arguing. You may remember um, some isolated incidents uh, with um, in counties where there were Dominion machines, like in Antrim County in northern Michigan, where a uh, an employee accidentally recorded Trump's totals as Biden's totals and vice versa. And it was human error. It had nothing to do with the machine. But this was the kind of story that got distorted and twisted and spun into part of the broader false narrative that Dominion machines were somehow capable through a secret algorithm or a software backdoor of flipping votes from one candidate to the other when nothing could be further from the truth.
1: Hmm. So given what you've laid out, Jeremy, how did these claims against uh, Dominion get started? I mean, is there a patient zero, I guess, for these conspiracy theories? The most
2: prominent purveyor of them was Sidney Powell. Uh, You'll recall she was a lawyer who, while not formally working for the Trump campaign, was effectively a spokesman woman for them because she started appearing on right-wing media she did interviews um in the days after the election on the rush limbaugh show she did them on newsmax um and then on november 8th which gets us to the fox news lawsuit she appears for the first time on maria Bartiromo's sunday morning news program and from there is where you really see these conspiracy theories take off in the broader right-wing media ecosystem. They had been kind of, you know, percolating, simmering, if you will, and once Fox got a hold of the story, that took it to a whole nother level and really amplified what were bogus claims about these you know, supposed glitches in Dominion software that could be manipulated by bad actors,
1: and I don't think Fox is denying that these statements were made on air by you know guests like Powell, hosts like Lou Dobbs. What does their defense in this case amount to? So that's that's
2: correct, and Fox has never argued because if it. it couldn't argue um, that any of these claims were remotely true. It, it conceded, in fact, that they were false, but it said that they, uh, the hosts and the guests um, that made these claims, were justified in doing so because they were coming from the most newsworthy of sources—the president and his allies—and it was on the most newsworthy of subjects—a presidential election—that uh, that they that, that the that one side claimed had been interfered with. And, and Fox argued in court, uh, argued in, t- to to the judge, um, argued to me and other reporters in interviews that this is the kind of conduct that is unquestionably protected by the first amendment. You, you should be able as a news organization to report on the lies of the president, even if he's lying um, without fear of liability. Well, that's not really the way the law works. And The judge has said, look, it it doesn't matter um, because these allegations were false. And you had no evidence to prove otherwise at the time. um, Fox would argue and will in in, in court, um, we know, that the hosts and, 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 and producers who were responsible for putting these on the air were taking the president and his advisors at their word that they would be able to prove these in court. You might recall that Rudy Giuliani and others Sidney Powell had these affidavits from people who swore under oath that they saw fraud taking place. Well, we now know that those affidavits were bogus. And the president and his lawyers never went to court to try and prove these allegations. And so they were never proven. Um, But Fox will still argue that it was giving the president and his lawyers the time to prove those claims. And then when that time was up sometime around mid-December and the election was 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 certified. um, That was it. They they largely stopped having Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani on. And that's the kind of argument that they hope will persuade a jury that what Fox did was within the bounds of protected First Amendment speech. Hmm.
1: Which I guess brings us to the one point six billion dollar question here. Are you surprised at all that Fox has been willing to let this case get this far without settling?
2: Yes. I think everybody who knows anything uh, about not just Rupert Murdoch and his his companies, but uh, the law of defamation in this country um, believed that this would have been settled a long time ago. But there has never been, ever, in the the two-year history of this case, on a serious attempt by Fox or Dominion to settle it. Hmm. And I think that's because a couple of things. Um, one, defamation cases are very, very difficult to argue before a jury. Now, this is a different case. It's, it's quite extraordinary. In fact, and legal experts will tell you they've rarely seen a case this strong against a major media company. Um, that said, you know the, the the burden of proof is on Dominion and a jury is unpredictable. So I think there was a little bit of a rolling of the dice there on Fox's part. But also, I believe that its lawyers were telling the the executives uh, at, at Fox Corporation headquarters in Los Angeles that they would beat this and that they never expected it to get to the point that it is now. And at this point, it's just too late to settle, I believe. I mean, my reporting tells me, um, that, you know, uh, the EP people involved 100% expect this the trial to begin on Monday.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, a constant theme in the emails and texts that you've reported on coming out of this case is this competition that Fox feels from other conservative media channels like Newsmax. Mm-hmm. How did that kind of all play into Fox's actions following the 2020 election?
2: So this is really one of the more puzzling aspects of this case, because Fox is not just the highest rated cable news network in the country. It's the highest rated network on cable, period. It has been a, a behemoth in the ratings since it overtook CNN in 2002 as, as the most watched cable news network. Its its It's audience, you know, it's... It may not sound all that large, but it's much larger um, than than its competition by 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 several magnitudes. I mean, it's you know you're t- talking about three million people uh, watching in prime time, uh, and you know, given TV being what it is today, that's that's pretty good. Um, and it makes a lot of money. Um, but the network executives, Rupert Murdoch included, got spooked after Trump and his supporters turned on Fox, because Fox did something after the election that Trump and his supporters weren't expecting. They told their audience the truth. And they said Donald Trump was going to lose the state of Arizona, and he was going to lose the presidency. And the president, being unable to accept that he had lost, started blaming everyone. And Fox was one of the people that he blamed. So viewers, you know, very loyal Trump viewers, changed the channel. And they started watching The networks like Newsmax that were more willing to lean hard into these conspiracy theories about voter fraud. And Fox saw that happening and they said, we need to fix this. Mm. And their solution for fixing it was to put people like Sidney Powell on the air. And, you know, the messages uh, uh, and, and, and texts that you refer to that we have now been able to see flying back and forth between hosts and their producers and executives show us that they were gleeful at the ratings they would get when someone like Sidney Powell would appear on a program
1: Right, we're talking about Dominion's uh, voting system's defamation lawsuit against Fox News with Jeremy Peters of the New York Times and we want to hear from you What questions do you have about the Dominion lawsuit? Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or give us a call now 866-733-6786 Stay with us You're listening to Forum. We're talking about Dominion Voting System's defamation lawsuit against Fox News as jury selection for the trial begins today. And we're looking at the impact that false information about Dominion's voting machines is already having in California and Shasta County, where supervisors have terminated their contract with Dominion and want to hand count ballots in future elections. If you want to weigh in on this topic, have questions about the lawsuit, you can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or give us a call now. Our phone lines are open. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And with us is Jeremy Peters, a correspondent with The New York Times, who's been covering this case. Uh, Jeremy, before the break, we were talking about the uh, competition that Fox News is facing from other right wing networks that might have influenced their actions after the 2020 election, the fear that they had uh, that supporters of former President Donald Trump might abandon their network. There's also a Dominion case against OAN ongoing. What's the status of that?
2: So yes, there are multiple lawsuits flying around uh, at the time against OAN, against Newsmax, against individuals like Mike Lindell, the My Pillow chief executive, uh, who also was a kind of a Sidney Powell-like figure going on the air, spouting you know utterly unprovable. Uh, conspiracy theories about dominion and, and other uh, companies like smartmatic smartmatic is also suing fox news and many of the uh, uh the people i just mentioned individually there are other right-wing outlets that are being sued um like uh uh, uh like gateway pundit um and there are people who were individually defamed they claim um b- uh, by Folks like uh, Giuliani and other t- uh, pro-Trump talking heads, that poll workers, people um, in Georgia uh, who footage of circulated uh, on on social media and on cable showing uh, what 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 uh, hosts wrongly claim were was suspicious or surreptitious activity. Like a uh, they one in one instance, um, a woman in Georgia is shown on surveillance footage. Passing something to another poll worker, uh, and and there was all of this paranoia, this frenzy. Like, oh my God, it's 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 a thumb drive. They're they're manipulating the 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 software, the voting machines. Um, no, it was it turned out she was just passing uh, a stick of gum. So it's it's stuff like that. Um, it's just this like this stew of of cases, defamation cases against the folks who perpetrated these lies. And the Fox News one uh, uh, that Dominion has filed is the one that is furthest along in the legal process. It is also the most significant case to date that will test whether or not um, someone, something incredibly powerful with with, with tremendous reach um, in, in Republican politics, Fox News, will have to pay a price for the lies that they told.
1: And we want to dive into those legal issues, uh, questions in a moment. But Jeremy, you cover the media and kind of the intersection with politics uh, for The New York Times. $1.6 billion is a lot of money. It's also, as we've seen with these texts and emails, Fox News felt like their, you know, business, their ratings were at stake with the way that they, you know, presented these falsehoods after the 2020 election. Have you gotten the sense that anything has changed at the network as a result of this lawsuit making it this far?
2: In a way, I've been surprised that they haven't been more chastened. By this, you know, the the and that starts with the question that you asked me about why there hasn't been a settlement and how, uh, how how unique that is in a case like this. And and I just think that there are many people at Fox who still believe that they did nothing wrong. And you can tell by the conduct of people like Tucker Carlson, who really through the, the emails and text messages we've been able to see of his the exchanges between him and his producers, they've been caught red handed telling their audience one thing while privately saying another saying to each other that they think Trump is demonic in Tucker Carlson's words that he's a destroyer um that that his 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 words um his his incitement um uh, before January 6th was quote deadly that's what Tucker Carlson said but he goes on the air to this day to deny January 6th to praise president Trump as recently as this week when he told his viewers that what President Trump had to say was sensible and wise. Now, that doesn't square at all with what we know he said privately.
1: Hmm. Jeremy Peters, correspondent covering the media and its intersection with politics, culture and the law for The New York Times, also the author of Insurgency, how Republicans lost their party and got everything they ever wanted. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Happy to be here. Thank you. And now we want to dive into some of the constitutional issues that this Dominion Fox News uh, case is raising. And joining us to do that is Jessica Levinson, professor of Loy- at Loyola Law School in L.A. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning. And Jessica, I want to start you off with a question from a listener, Peter, in San Francisco, that really gets to the heart of, I think, why a lot of uh, constitutional scholars are closely watching this case. Um, so let's go to Peter.
0: Yes, hi, thanks for the program. I understood that libel was written untruths that are harmful. Slander is oral, orally made uh, statements that are harmful and untrue. Um, but I'm not clear exactly what defamation, how that's defined. And the other thing is that uh, there's always been a phrase in my mind, reckless disregard of the truth, uh, as being necessary to prove uh, libel. And in this case, I don't know that what they did was reckless. It seemed to me that it was very intentional. It was very clear what they were, they were going for, the gain of pleasing their audience and not losing ratings. So it was extremely intentional and not reckless like, say, a drunk driver might be recklessly driving and zigging and zagging. They were aiming their car right at the truth each time.
1: Jessica, this seems to get right at the heart of the case, what Peter is asking about, when does kind of putting inaccuracies out there tip into defamation?
4: So, this is a great question, and defamation law ultimately is a place where we allow people to be punished for what they say, which sounds like it raises First Amendment concerns because it does, and that's why defamation suits typically are quite difficult to prove, and that's why Peter's talking about this recklessness standard. So essentially what we've decided is that there can be a punishment sometimes for what people say. That's okay under the First Amendment if they satisfy certain prongs for defamation. So what do you need? You need a false statement. It's not an opinion. It's a false statement of fact. And you need to show that it's about the person who's suing. It's about plaintiff, that it causes damage, And then here's what we're really going to be fighting over when it comes to um, the Dominion case. It has to be made with actual malice, and that means that the statement was made either knowing that it was false or recklessly disregarding the falsity. Typically, that's incredibly difficult to prove, but in this case, as you've been discussing, we have text messages. In Discovery, we have a lot of evidence that seems to be pointing towards the idea that they absolutely did know that what they were saying was false. And so those are the elements that we need for a defamation claim. This case, just one more point on this, this case is different because the judge has actually already ruled for dominion on all of the elements except actual malice. So there are really only two live legal issues in this case. One is did, um, Did the defendants in this case, did Fox, did they act with actual malice, the hosts that are being sued? And the second is the level of involvement that Fox Corporation has with those statements. And those are really, in my mind, the two live issues here.
1: And you mentioned that phrase, actual malice. What's the legal history for that standard that the Supreme Court has established for defamation?
4: Yeah, great question. Actual malice, as I mentioned, it's a really difficult standard to prove because, again, we're punishing people for their speech. We're punishing them for what they're saying. So actual malice really comes to us back from a case in the 1960s, a case called New York Times versus Sullivan. And what it says is when we're talking about a public figure and the public figure is suing, that What you need to show is not just negligence in making that false statement of fact, but we're not going to punish you until you can show that you knew. You knew it was false or there were so many red flags that you acted with reckless disregard. So typically, you need some sort of smoking gun to satisfy that standard. Um, In this case, I think there's a real question as to whether or not we have those smoking guns.
1: Right. Given all the the text, the transcripts that we've seen in Discovery, I guess I'll ask you the same question I asked Jeremy Peters. Are you surprised, given all that, that Fox has not settled this case yet?
4: So yes and no. I mean, I'm not surprised that Fox didn't settle earlier in the sense that this is a huge amount of money. We have no idea what, if any, the settlement offer was. Um, The other thing is, I think, up until really just about a week ago, there was still the chance that they would basically have a more favorable case to bring to the jury, because that was before the judge ruled, essentially granting summary judgment on every issue other than that actual malice issue. So Fox wanted to come forward with a robust First Amendment defense. They wanted to claim that they, something called the reporting privilege essentially. Well, we were just reporting on what other people were saying and we were just doing that in a neutral way. They also wanted to say that they were just reporting on the court filings that included those specific statements. But that defense, as the judge said, it didn't make any sense given the timing of when those post-election lawsuits were actually filed. So I guess I'm not particularly surprised they didn't settle before because these cases really, really rarely go to trial. This is a big defamation case. It could potentially change the law. At this point, I don't know that there is any settlement offer that is worth it for them, Um, but I think that they will, to the extent possible, even though legally it's been foreclosed, they're going to continue to try and say to the jury, First Amendment, First
1: Amendment, First Amendment. Hmm. We're talking with Jessica Levinson, professor of law at Loyola Law School. She's also the host of the podcast Passing Judgment. We're talking about Dominion's case against Fox News. As Jessica said, it's a big one, both the damages that Dominion is looking for and also the potential legal and constitutional ramifications. Jessica, you know, I guess Fox's argument in this is that the larger protections of press freedom are at stake with them and in this case what do you make of that?
4: So I think we need to be incredibly careful before we ever punish the press and frankly that's what the actual malice standard requires of us that we don't punish people particularly members of the press until we have determined that they knew they were lying or that really any reasonable person would have had to actively ignore so many red flags that they disregarded the fact that they were lying. So it is, we have a very robust First Amendment tradition in our country, and I think that is very important. The press informs us, they hold elected officials accountable. This in my mind is not a case about the freedom of the press or the freedom of speech, as much as it's about at what point can we hold people accountable for false statements of fact. And again, it's a balance that we have struck. And frankly, we have heard from some conservatives that it's too hard to satisfy the defamation standard. At times, the former president said, we should make it easier to sue and we should make it easier to sue the press. That's not the argument now. Now they really are relying on how difficult that actual malice standard is.
1: I want to you know, talk a little bit about the potential of this case or a case reexamining that Sullivan decision going to the Supreme Court. But first, I want to remind folks, too, that our phone lines are open. If you have a question about this Dominion Fox News case, we're also going to get to uh, how these Election conspiracy theories are affecting voting in Shasta County in Northern California. Our phone lines are open 866 733 6786. That's 866 733 6786. Jessica Levinson with Loyal Law School is uh, joining us here. And This issue of, you know, whether the Supreme Court is, I guess, itching to take this up, you mentioned how conservatives have in recent years called for perhaps a revisitation of of Sullivan. Um, How likely, I guess, is that a larger reexamination of press freedom and defamation makes its way to the Supreme Court?
4: Well, defamation law is a creature of state law, so our federal lawmakers cannot change the defamation laws. And what it would really require is, I think, a state either changing the law and or cases like what we're seeing right now, where basically the parties are asking, what, is the, what are the boundaries of our current defamation law? Now, I'm going to answer the question a little bit from the side, which is, let's say a case, there's a defamation case, maybe a state changes its law and it comes up to the Supreme Court. It's a state that doesn't require actual malice because they're trying to push the boundaries of the First Amendment. This particular court is very protective of First Amendment freedoms, but I think they have to acknowledge that we live in a world where there is a lot of disinformation and misinformation, and maybe that's all a long way of saying, I don't know exactly how that plays with the court. I know that they are really concerned with trampling on First Amendment rights, though.
1: Hmm. I mean, it seems like there is some irony here that Fox News is, uh, you know, claiming to be the standard bearer of Sullivan, of press freedom in this case, uh, given, as you say, that, you know, it's maybe many conservatives, the former president, who might want to chip away at some of the, the free speech protections the media currently has.
4: It does feel to me to be extremely ironic, given, again, a lot of the rhetoric that we've seen around how we punish social media companies, a lot of the rhetoric that the former president used uh, when he was a candidate, saying we need to make it easier to sue the press, that they're spreading lies about us. But, you know, this is not unique to conservatives. A lot of people want to punish the law and, or, excuse me, push the law and change it until it protects them. Hmm.
1: I mean, Dominion's case is focused on obviously the harm to their business, their reputation, but these same conspiracies are, you know, have been a harm to our democracy. These are part of what led to the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Is that in any way likely to factor into this case, you think?
4: So I don't know exactly what Fox will argue and what they will try and avoid. And I don't know how broad dominion will go in terms of their arguments, I do suspect that the judge will try and say, this isn't a seminar on how harmful false speech is. And this is not about what's happening to our democracy. This is about looking at the specific defamation law in Delaware and trying to determine if dominion can satisfy these elements because a courtroom really unless you're in the Supreme Court and then sometimes not even when you're in the Supreme Court. It's not the place to set new policy.
1: Mm -hmm. Jessica Levinson, professor of law at Loyola Law School, also host of the podcast Passing Judgment. Thanks so much for joining in this morning and, and sharing your thoughts on this Dominion case. Thank you. Coming up, we're going to be looking at how some of these same conspiracy theories about Dominion are affecting voting in Shasta County in Northern California. We want to hear from you if you've heard of misinformation about these machines in your own county or local elections. Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum, or give us a call now. Phones are open. 866 733 6786 That's 866 866- 733 Seven three three six seven eight six. Stay with us. More from Shasta County coming up.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Guy Marzorati In today for Mina Kim, and we're talking about Dominion's lawsuit against Fox News for spreading conspiracy theories about voting machines. And now we're going to discuss how those same conspiracies are affecting voting here in California. And for that, we're going to go to Shasta County, where we're joined by Roman Battaglia, reporter, producer for Jefferson Public Radio, who's been following the events up there. Roman, good morning. Morning. Also joining us is Tommy Gong, Deputy County Clerk Recorder in Contra Costa County. Good morning, Tommy.
5: Thanks for having me, Guy. Good morning.
1: So, Roman, I want to start with you and this uh, how these conspiracies have changed, affected voting in Shasta County. When did residents and officials there first kind of start their local campaign against Dominion voting machines?
6: Yeah, I mean, I would say that that really started... When these same claims about election fraud during the 2020 election started happening, um, I especially noticed a big push back during the primaries early last year. Uh, I talked with some of the people on the board of supervisors right now, the current board chair, Patrick Jones, who was basically telling me, like, it doesn't smell right, like he doesn't think there's something right in the election the way it was going and, you know, thinks there's fraud, but doesn't really say where the fraud is or proving where it's actually coming from and I think that's really when we started to see things sort of kick up and get to where we've gotten to now in Shasta County which is just sort of you know very interesting in terms of how they're changing their election system.
1: And I think it's worth noting this is kind of just the latest political drama on the Shasta County Board of Supervisors. Last year a supervisor was recalled over opposition to COVID restrictions. Are there any of the same players involved in this voting machine Dominion
6: controversy? Yeah, yeah. Um, So there was that recall last year. And I I think for people to know, Shasta County is a very conservative county in Northern California. Um, All five of the Board of Supervisors members are Republicans. Some of them are more conservative than others, but it's been leaning more and more conservative in recent years. The latest election, um, two more conservative board members came onto the board. And so they now have this majority to do a lot of what they've been wanting to do recently. Um, We've been seeing that kind of picking up with them doing things like scrapping their contract with Dominion voting systems and, you know, implementing a lot of this stuff um, in the county, you know, because they now have this majority and can do what they want. So take
1: us through the timeline here. What kind of led to the board's decision ultimately to drop the Dominion contract? And then what happened after that?
6: Yeah, so they ended up deciding to drop this contract back in late January. And essentially this happened pretty much based on these unproven election fraud claims that we've been seeing. Um, They haven't really – a lot of this has sort of been spearheaded by the board chair, Patrick Jones. Um, He hasn't really provided a lot of concrete evidence on why he's making this decision, simply saying he's trying to increase trust in the elections and that we don't have any trust and that he doesn't doesn't really trust these electronic voting machines saying they could be hacked and all these sorts of things. But without really providing a lot of evidence – Beside that. Um, and even though we've seen, you know, through this Fox News lawsuit that's happening right now that they knew that all of these claims were false, they're, you know, people in Shasta County are still going forward with a lot of these changes. So they did that in late January. Since that point, they hadn't, they never chose an alternative. Um, California only has three certified voting systems that you can choose from in the state. Um, and they didn't choose an alternative at that point. So they were kind of going without an election system for a long time. Uh, they ended up finally choosing some sort of vendor, Heart Inner Civic, uh, last week, finally. Um, but the twist on that is that they're not going to use all of the machines from that vendor in their voting system. They're going to try and hand count every ballot in their election. They would be the only California county to do so. Um, It's, you know, it's not something that you do now because especially in California, ballots are really, really long. They're really complicated. It can be really hard to count them. And, you know, studies have shown that hand counting is just more expensive, more time consuming and less accurate than these machines. You know, you're counting ballots for hours and hours. It gets really, really tiring. And so you make a lot of mistakes. So they're trying to move forward with this plan to hand count ballots right now while having a... You know, vendor for voting equipment in place to provide some of the federally required accessibility requirements for voting, as well as like actually designing and printing a ballot that can be read by those accessibility machines. So they're having some machines do some stuff, but trying to, you know, hand count the ballots instead, which is what Patrick Jones believes will increase trust.
1: I want to bring Tommy Gong in on this. He's Deputy County Clerk Recorder in Contra Costa County. Tommy, from your experience, how feasible is this idea, a hand, a hand count of ballots?
5: Yeah, um, you know, actually, in reviewing the uh, the the, the uh, manual tally analysis that uh, Shasta County's uh, Clerk Recorder has done, uh, they did a, great, a really good job in terms of laying out, like, how this would actually take place uh, this is actually quite unprecedented and something that is, you know, hasn't been tested um, even to the point, you know, earlier in the year, the Secretary of State's office didn't have didn't even have uh, regulations in place for a uh, fully manual tally of the ballots, for example. And I think they're starting to establish those regulations now. Um, so one of the biggest challenges as I'm reviewing uh, the the, the uh, analysis that they did is that when you have a, a a tabulation system, electronic tabulation system, so to speak, you can begin processing those ballots as early as 29 days before the election. But uh, uh, notwithstanding that, if you have to count them by hand, you will not be able to start until 5 p.m. the day before the election. And so that like totally reduces the amount of time that you're going to have in order to be able to count all of the vote by mail ballots, not to mention the ballots that are being cast at the polling places on election day. And so when you're looking at something like that, then you need, uh, you know, as they as they uh, mentioned in here, they're going to need 1,200 people to be able to uh, achieve, um, be anywhere near to be able to achieve that type of. Uh, uh, expectation on election night, you're going to have uh, 27 hours to count your ballots uh, before your first report is going to be due at 8 p.m. on election night, for example, and, you know, your subsequent updates. And when will you actually be done? What time of the day or the next day that you actually be done with manually telling ballots, not to mention those that will happen during the canvas? So it's a very daunting process that they're that they're considering right now, given the direction by their board of supervisors.
1: And then there's the issue of voting access. We have a comment from Victoria, who writes, if the Dominion voting machines are banned in Shasta County, are there any proposed workarounds for the blind and other disabled people to be able to cast their ballot? Roman, have you heard anything about that?
6: Yeah, so that's why I talked about, you know, they actually picked a voting vendor a lot of the conversations they've been having since January have been about accessibility because i think the county has been really worried and literally people will be coming to the board and saying we're going to file a lawsuit against you if you don't provide these accessibility requirements um that is why they ended up finally picking a vendor um they've sort of been you know uh their, their lawyers have been basically telling them that you need to choose something. You need to have a machine in place to actually have people who are disabled be able to vote and meet these requirements. They theoretically could develop their own system. L.A. County developed their own system, but it took you know decades and like 30 hundreds of millions of dollars to develop, and that is not something Shasta County has. So they really had to pick one of the vendors that California already has approved to provide some of those things. And that's what they're sort of trying to do. They're going with like this hybrid system of, you know, creating the ballots with machines and, you know, providing these accessible options. But most people are going to be filling them out by hand and then they're going to be counted by hand, theoretically. Um, I know that the rules that the Secretary of State are developing are going to have some, you know, Fail-safes just in case, like requiring that they're going to have to scan the ballots before they hand-count them um, in case they come up with a lot of errors and need to actually count them by a machine instead of by hand to just double-check the results.
1: We're talking about voting changes in Shasta County, which broke its contract with Dominion. Um, and we want to hear from you. What questions do you have? Are you concerned about the impact that some of this misinformation and disinformation is having in California? And have you heard about theories about these machines in your own county or local elections? We're going to go to the phones now in Napa with Matt. Uh, yeah, I
0: have a question about when questioning an election election crosses the line into disinformation or uh, slander or those types of things. Because, uh, you know, it's if you say, well, it could be that these things happened, is, is that in the line of an appropriate thing? It's just reaching a conclusion and saying that there was absolutely the election was stolen that crosses the line into all of this. Thanks.
1: Good question, Matt. Tommy, I don't know if, you know, you might hear questions like this uh, in election season in Contra Costa County. Do you have a, a response for Matt?
5: Yeah, you know, one of the it's just human nature, for example, when uh, your candidate of choice is not the person that is selected, you know, by the majority of the voters. And so there is already this skepticism that comes into play, you know, in our minds about, you know, um, was the election legitimate, for example, and, you know, with mis- and disinformation that was floating out there in during the 2020 election, it just added fuel to that fire to be able to provide that. Um, us as election officials, you know, there is a, laws and regulations that we're required to follow when we're conducting the election. It has evolved over a hundred years in California, for example, and there was been a lot of safeguards and checks and balances in the process, such as the requirement, how you're supposed to, uh, the security involved in your voting system, the testing that you're doing before, uh, during, and after the uh, election process is taking place. And these are the sort of things that the general public don't really understand about, you know, what it is that takes place during an election. You know, when it comes to election officials, it the public is generally thinking you're only working one or two days out of the year because it's only election day. But when you think understand everything that takes place, uh, these are the things that we're responsible for. And so um, I do I do really uh, believe that it's it's vitally important that election officials get out there and really start educating the public about all of the things that we do to be able to build public trust back into elections.
1: I mean, I even saw in the last election, I think it was Sonoma County had a live YouTube feed of their ballot counting. I'm not sure I would sell ads against that, but it was certainly a way to open it up to the public. What else can be done in that vein? What are you uh, working on in Contra Costa County when it comes to, you know, making this process more transparent and accessible to residents who might have questions?
5: Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things I've, I've been here in Contra Costa for uh just under uh, two years. And uh, once I landed here, one thing I recognized is uh, we have, uh we, uh, the Bay Area really uses the same media market. And there's, you know, a dozen counties that are utilizing all the same media market. So we watch the news, you're going to see news covering Santa Clara all the way to Solano County, for example, and up north to Sonoma. And so one of the things that we've done is uh we've approached all of the counties comprising of the Bay Area to work collectively, and to be able to really stand in solidarity with all the things that that we do and putting our heads together about what we can do to actually educate the public about the things uh, regarding elections uh, so that there's greater understanding and greater trust in the process um, in contra costa one of the things that we're doing is uh, we're doing what we call a certified election observer program and typically an observer is going to come who's representing a candidate or the candidate themselves to see, you know, the ballots being processed. We've actually taken it a step further by reaching out to uh, people who are uh, uh, nonpartisan, really have an interest in the election process, and they come and they observe all of the uh, 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 processes that we perform. Um, They visit us like four to five times. During the election cycle to see, for example, the logic and accuracy test down to checking signatures and um, and even during the canvas process. So they really can see kind of from soup to nuts all of the things that we perform. And uh, then they become actually our advocates in in being able to. you know, to to talk to, you know, their family and friends about the things that they've seen. And we've been trying to do more of reaching out to those who might be skeptical of the process so that they can come and see uh, the procedures and processes and the safeguards that we have in place. And uh, just most recently we did and, you know, I will just say from, you know, from those, the voters who are more skeptical, there's a real concern that if they remain skeptical, then they will not be participating in our democracy. And yet they're, you know, part of our society just the same. And they should be uh, willing to uh, voice their, you know, their, their uh, uh, choices for their, for their candidates and all. And so that's what we've been doing in terms of trying to really reach out to the public and provide that information.
1: Right. You're listening to Forum. I'm Guy Marzorati in from Mina Kim. And Roman Metalia, reporter for Jefferson Public Radio, who's been following these events in, in Shasta County. We have a comment from a listener, Don, who writes I'm a Shasta County resident and I'm greatly disappointed in the nonsense that some county board members, including Patrick Henry Jones, have with the voting process. Don writes that for some reason Mr. Jones is prioritizing this major non issue instead of addressing dramatically more important issues which he lists as wildfire fuel reduction, homelessness and crime. Roman, is that something you've heard from residents at all, that this, you know, push to get rid of the Dominion contract to move towards this really novel idea of a hand count is maybe not should not be the top priority for the Board of Supervisors?
6: That has been a big topic at the Board of Supervisors meetings every time they talk about this. um, I hear a lot of residents and even some of the supervisors, including uh, Mary Rickert, who's one of the, uh, I guess, Less conservative members of the board uh, talk about how, you know, this is just very financially irresponsible to be spending all of this money getting rid of, you know, a voting system that you've already had and that has worked and that elected all of these supervisors currently, you know, just to replace it with something based on unproven theories. Um, It's going to cost them a lot of money, at least, you know, around $2 million just to sign a new contract with Hart over the next two years, plus. $1.6 million to hire those 1,200 staff, Tom, you mentioned just to count the ballots. Those are only temporary staff too. I don't don't know where you're going to get 1,200 staff members in Shasta County, but they'll have to figure it out essentially. And yeah, there's a lot of other issues in the county. And I think a lot of people are concerned that why are we spending all of our money on things like voting systems that already worked in the first place when we have a lot of other issues that really need to be focused on. And the county supervisors haven't really seemed to be focusing on those as much because they're just you know, really dead set on all this election stuff right now.
1: And what are you hearing from local election officials? Are they kind of resigned to move forward with this hand count, or Is there still kind of some pushback and hopes that the board might change directions before the next election?
6: Yeah, I think that this has been a big fight between the uh, you know county elections officials and the supervisors throughout these past months. Um, the county clerk Kathy Darling Allen wrote a really long letter to the supervisors the day before they did some voting on this to urge them to go back to Dominion or just pick a voting system and not do hand counting. Um, but they ended up not going with that idea, and you know. It's. They're going to have to do a lot of stuff with this work. I think that one thing that I heard Kathy Darling-Allen say in last week's meeting was that you know the supervisors are essentially setting up the county elections office to fail because it's going to take so much time, effort, and money to do all of this hand-counting stuff. And then the hand-counting will probably turn out to be less accurate than the machines anyways. So they're really – You're putting a lot of work and, you know, stuff on top of the elections department that they shouldn't have to be doing. Um, I think that's they're going to do it because the county supervisors have told them to, but they're not going to be really happy about it.
1: That's Roman Vitalia, reporter with Jefferson Public Radio, joining us to talk about voting changes in Shasta County. Thanks so much, Roman. Yeah, thank you. Also with us is Tommy Gong, deputy county clerk recorder in Contra Costa County. Tommy, thanks for joining us as well.
5: Oh, thank you very much.
1: Thanks to all my guests, and thanks to all of you, our listeners. This hour was produced by Susie Britton. I'm Guy Marzorati. in for Mina Kim, and you've been listening to Forum.
4: Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.